Before we start today's show, i uh, just like to give everyone a heads up that we'll be discussing, um, we'll be using some graphic descriptions of the events that we discuss. Uh, so if you have a sensitive constitution or children are in the room, you may want to exercise some discretion. We don't worry about Sean selling his house and, you know, living on a shrimp boat in the, on the Gulf Coast. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elpstrom. Fifty years ago this week, an ex-Marine and former student of the University of Texas climbed into the university's clock tower with an arsenal of weapons and opened fire onto students walking through the campus. It was the first modern mass shooting and was one of the defining tragedies in the history of Austin and of Texas. This week we look back at the UT Tower shootings. But first, what's your favorite Texas train? Well, I have several possibilities for this. Uh, Some of them I have ridden in, some I have not. But I'm going to have to go with my favorite Texas train at the moment, which is the model train that drives around the... uh, the dining room at the Bavarian Grill. Um, it brings me great joy to sit there and eat my wiener schnitzel and watch the train go round and round. I'll hearken back to a childhood memory of the 70s, and that's riding the Eagle at Breckenridge Park in San Antonio. It's a small-scale train for children. <laughs> well, my pick is the uh, train at Six Flags Over Texas. Toot toot! Say your description of the Eagle Mike reminds me of uh, Silver Spoons. It's exactly like Silver Spoons, which is probably why it was the best. I will say this. The question really should be, but first, what's your favorite tiny Texas train? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, in that case, I'll go with the uh, the little train that goes around Grapevine Mills Mall in Grapevine Mills. What is the train at Six Flags? There's not a... Uh, that's an that's a full size train. train. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the only ride that's been there since the beginning. It's the Six Flags Railroad. Okay. It's Sam, the General the Sam park. Houston. Yep. But no, never is, been there. It is a <laughs> still haven't been. Still haven't been. Still haven't. My been. children have been twice, but I haven't got to go. <laughs> there you go. August first, nineteen sixty-six was a day like any other in Austin. It was sunny and clear, and typically hot. The legislature wasn't in session, so not much was happening down on Congress Street. Willie Nelson was still six years away from relocating to Austin, but the local music scene buzzed over the modest hit by the 13th floor elevators, You're Gonna Miss Me. The campus was wrapping up the second summer semester and preparing for the influx of freshmen that would come in just a few weeks. And of course, we were waiting for the start of Longhorn football under Coach Darrell Royal. But at 11.58 a.m., it became clear as shots began to ring out over the common areas of the campus and nearby streets that this day was a day like none other. At the day's end, 32 people would be wounded and 17 dead, including the killer himself, Charles Whitman. Charles Whitman was born in 1941 in Florida. His father, Charles Sr., owned a small business and his mother was a young housewife. Whitman was a quiet but polite and friendly boy who displayed an extremely high level of intelligence from a very young age. His IQ was measured at 139 when he was just six years old. He was a talented pianist as well as a natural athlete and a devout Catholic. 
he was also an avid outdoorsman. Whitman became one of the youngest Eagle Scouts ever at the age of 12, obtaining the rank in less than 15 months. This is a remarkable achievement. Thanks to his father, Whitman was also an avid hunter and an excellent shot. Whitman's life wasn't completely idyllic, however. His father was a strict disciplinarian and authoritarian who demanded perfection and was physically and emotionally abusive to his family. Life behind closed doors at the Whitman house was so rough that Charles Jr. left home shortly after graduating high school in 1959 and joined the Marine Corps. He didn't even tell his father. He'd had enough of the beatings and wanted to make a career out of the Marines. He excelled in boot camp and advanced training, especially at marksmanship, earning a sharpshooter's badge. His conduct and intelligence qualified him for a scholarship program where he'd be able to go to college and earn a degree and return to service as a commissioned officer. He chose to attend the University of Texas in Austin, enrolling in the mechanical engineering program. Initially, Whitman did poorly in college. Without the discipline of his home or the Corps, he played around a little too much and studied too little. Whitman seemed more interested in hunting, gambling, and other recreational activities. He also struck his peers and friends as a handsome, smart guy, but with a somewhat strange sense of humor from time to time. He once joked to a friend, quote, A person could stand off an army from on top of the tower before they got him. While in Austin, Whitman met and married a young education student named Kathleen in 1962. After getting married, he settled down and somewhat improved his grades. However, the Marines weren't impressed with his performance and revoked his scholarship, returning him to active duty. Whitman had a reputation as an exemplary Marine, but he also still had a gambling problem, and this colored the end of his life as a Marine. He was honorably discharged from the Marines in 1964 and chose to return to Austin in order to complete his studies. Over the next two years, Whitman repeatedly changed majors and bounced from job to job. Kathleen's teaching job was the family's primary source of income, and Whitman's journals showed that he resented her for that. They also showed he was becoming more and more like his father, who he still depended on for financial help. He admitted to striking Kathleen at least twice, and his journals showed that he was terrified of becoming the man that his father was. Whitman also wrote about the agonizing headaches that he began suffering through and the strange thoughts and impulses that gradually started to creep into his mind. Between the fall and winter of 1965, Whitman visited five doctors to find out why he was having the headaches before he was referred to a psychiatrist. He met with the UT Health Center staff psychiatrist, Dr. Maurice Heatley, in March 1966. During their one visit, Dr. Heatley wrote in his notes from the session that, quote, This massive muscular youth seemed to be oozing with hostility, that something seemed to be happening to him and that he didn't seem to be himself. He also said, He freely admits having overwhelming periods of hostility with a very minimum of provocation. Repeated inquiries attempting to analyze his exact experiences were not too successful with the exception of his vivid reference to thinking about going up on the tower with a deer rifle and start shooting people. The doctor didn't prescribe any medicine, and Whitman never returned. As Whitman's mental state deteriorated, so did his family life. In May 1966, Whitman's mother, Margaret, left his father after decades of spousal abuse and moved to Texas. Margaret got a job in a cafeteria in Austin and lived in an apartment with her youngest son, John, who'd moved from Fort Worth to help her. This time was incredibly stressful on the whole family, as Charles Sr. would call Margaret, as well as Charles, several times a day to try to talk her into coming back to Florida. Whitman also began taking Valium and amphetamines in order to alleviate the crippling headaches. 
By the end of the summer, his journal showed that he couldn't take the pain or the pressure any longer. On July 31st, Whitman ran errands during the day before picking up his wife at her summer job as a telephone operator and meeting his mother for lunch. That afternoon, he and Kathy met with some friends before he drove her to work her evening shift. At 6.45, Whitman wrote a series of notes to relatives and a suicide note that read, quote, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. He also wrote that he wanted his body autopsied in order to see if there was a reason for his behavior and his headaches. Finally, he wrote that he planned on killing his wife and his mother to spare them from further suffering for his actions. Shortly after midnight on August 1st, Whitman drove to his mother's apartment and killed her, covering her body with sheets. He then went back home and killed Kathy, stabbing her in her sleep. He left notes beside their bodies, expressing his love for them and the distress he'd felt at his actions. His final note in his journal said, August 1st, 66. I never could quite make it. These thoughts are too much for me. After calling in sick for Kathy to Southwestern Bell, Whitman went to several stores where he purchased several rifles and a shotgun, as well as ammunition. He added these to the small arsenal of pistols and rifles he already owned, and at 11 a.m., he drove to the campus of the University of Texas. At approximately 11.35 a.m., Whitman arrived on campus. He got a parking permit by showing false identification and parked next to the main building, a large building near the center of campus with a 40-story central tower and an observation deck below a large clock at the top. He wheeled a rented dolly carrying his equipment into the building and took an elevator to the top floor. Whitman went up the stairs leading to the observation deck where he had encountered the 51-year-old receptionist Edna Townsley. He knocked her to the floor and beat her unconscious with his rifle butt. A few minutes later, an Austin couple named Cheryl Botts and Don Walden, who had been out on the deck, returned to the reception area. Whitman was leaning across the couch holding a rifle in each hand. Walden later said he thought Whitman was there to shoot pigeons. The couple exchanged brief pleasantries before Botts and Walden left. Whitman then barricaded the stairway. As he got ready to go out onto the deck, he saw two families, MJ and Mary Gabor with their sons Mike and Mark, and Mary's sister Marguerite Lamport with her husband William, who were coming up the stairs. As 16-year-old Mark Gabor and 18-year-old Mike tried to look past the barricade, Whitman fired his shotgun at them, killing Mark instantly. Mike was shot in the head, shoulder, and left leg, and he was knocked unconscious. Whitman fired the shotgun three more times to the grates, wounding Mary Gabor in the head and killing Marguerite Lamport. Whitman then shot and killed the unconscious Edna Townsley before walking out onto the observation deck. He had created his fortress on top of the tower and proceeded to set up his sniper post. The first shots fired by Whitman from the tower's outer deck came at around 11.48 a.m., hitting Claire Wilson, an 18-year-old student who was eight months pregnant. The first shot killed her unborn child, and the second shot killed her fiancé, Thomas Ekman, as he tried to help Wilson. The next shot killed 33-year-old mathematician Robert Boyer, and another shot wounded 31-year-old student Devereaux Huffman in the right arm. When Charlotte Darashori, a young secretary, ran to help Boyer and Huffman, she came under fire. She crouched beneath the concrete base of a flagpole for an hour and a half, shielding herself from the sniper's view. 
There is a famous photo of her crouching behind the flagpole that is one of the most remembered images of the day. Next, Whitman shot David Gunby, a 23-year-old electrical engineering student, walking in the courtyard. Gunby lived until 2001, but suffered from his wounds his entire life. When he died, the coroner ruled his death a homicide. Next, Whitman killed 22-year-old Thomas Ashton. Adrian and Brenda Littlefield were wounded as they walked onto the South Mall, and Nancy Harvey and Ellen Evangidis were wounded as they walked down the West Mall. Adrian and Brenda Littlefield were wounded as they walked onto the South Mall, and Nancy Harvey and Ellen Evgenidis were wounded as they walked down the West Mall. Whitman then began shooting at people walking on Guadalupe Street, hitting a 17-year-old newspaper delivery boy, Alex Hernandez, and mortally wounding 17-year-old Karen Griffith and 24-year-old senior Thomas Carr. Whitman shot 35-year-old basketball coach Billy Snowden and 21-year-old Sandra Wilson from a distance of over 1,500 feet over a block away. Not far away, he hit Abdul Kassab and his fiancée, Janet Paulos, outside a dress shop. He then hit 21-year-old Lana Phillips in the shoulder. Phillips' sister ran from cover to drag her to safety. Three Peace Corps trainees, Tom Herman, Roland Elk, and David Matson, were targeted as they walked toward a luncheon for volunteers. Matson and Elk were wounded, but Herman escaped injury. A 64-year-old local shopkeeper named Homer Kelly helped Herman drag the wounded into his shop before he was also shot in the leg. Whitman worked his way through the intersections of Guadalupe Street, hitting students Oscar Royella and Irma Garcia and a 26-year-old carpenter named Avelino Esparza. At the entrance to the West Mall, Paul Sontag and Claudia Rutt were hiding behind a construction barricade with teenager Carla Sue Wheeler when Whitman started shooting at them, killing Sontag. Rutt tried to reach Sontag while Wheeler restrained her. A bullet passed through Wheeler's left hand and fatally wounded Rutt. A block north of there, Whitman shot and killed Harry Walchuk, a 38-year-old doctoral student, and wounded 36-year-old press reporter Robert Hurd, as well as 18-year-old freshman John Allen. A history professor was the first to telephone the Austin Police Department at 11.52 a.m., four minutes after the shooting began. Austin police officer Billy Speed was one of the first on the scene. He and a colleague took refuge behind a columned stone wall, but Whitman shot through the six-inch spacing between the columns of the wall and killed Speed. He also shot and killed 29-year-old electrical repairman Roy Schmidt as he tried to hide behind a parked car. The shootings and news of the sniper caused panic in and around the university. There were few active radios near the campus, and no police were in the area at the time of the shootings. All active police officers in Austin were ordered to the campus. Off-duty officers, county deputies, and highway patrolmen all converged on the area as well. None of the police were equipped with rifles or shotguns, and many officers went home to get their own hunting weapons before heading to campus. As police struggled to respond, students and university staff worked to assist and move the wounded to safety, risking their lives. Medical personnel used an armored car and provisioned ambulances from local funeral homes to reach the wounded. A 30-year-old ambulance technician named Morris Homan was shot in the leg on West 23rd Street as he tried to evacuate the numerous wounded. Those who could be evacuated were taken to Breckenridge Hospital, the only local hospital with an emergency room. The hospital administrator declared a state of emergency, calling in off-duty shifts back to work. Approximately 20 minutes after the shooting started, police and armed civilians began firing back at Whitman. A Texas Ranger used a student as a spotter to help locate Whitman, who was using water spouts located on each side of the tower to fire from. This protected him 
but it limited his line of sight, undoubtedly helping to save many of the wounded, as he could no longer target people who were trying to help them. A police sharpshooter named Marion Lee went up in a small airplane, and he was able to spot Whitman on the observation deck. He tried to shoot Whitman from the plane, but the turbulence was too strong. Whitman shot at the plane, driving it off. He never shot any of his victims more than once, sticking to the one-shot, one-kill theory of Marine sniper training. Three officers who arrived on the scene were Ramiro Martinez, Houston McCoy, and Jerry Day. McCoy had been with Billy Speed when Officer Speed was killed. Both Martinez and Day had driven to the University of Texas after listening to radio reports. They were the first officers to reach the tower's observation deck. They were accompanied by an armed civilian named Alan Crum, who they'd encountered as they ran toward the tower. They reached the 26th floor and found M.J. Gabor, the only person unharmed by Whitman's initial round of shooting within the tower. Gabor screamed that his family had been shot and he tried to take Day's rifle to shoot Whitman himself. Day subdued Gabor and led him to safety before rejoining McCoy, Crum, and Martinez to take the stairs leading up to the observation deck. Beneath the stairwell leading to the reception area, they discovered the carnage before the barricade and gave first aid to Mary and Mike Gabor. Mike had gestured to the observation deck and said, He's out there. Getting past the barricade, Martinez and McCoy went up the east deck while Day and Crum took the south deck, intending to encircle Whitman. Crum's gun went off as they were approaching Whitman, causing him to turn towards the south deck. As Whitman sat crouched with his back against the north wall and Martinez jumped around the corner into the northeast area and rapidly fired all six rounds from his police revolver at Whitman. As Martinez fired, McCoy jumped to the right of Martinez and fired two fatal shots from his 12-gauge shotgun, killing Whitman. The incident was finally over. Just over one hellish hour, 14 people were killed and 32 wounded. Austin's worst day came to a close. In the days that followed the shootings, people searched for answers. Of course, when his identity was learned, the bodies of Whitman's wife and mother were discovered, compounding the tragedy. Why did this man do these horrific things? Why did it take so long for police to respond? And why did armed civilians have to act when there weren't enough police who could? Governor John Conley, who'd been part of his own horrific tragedy in Dallas just three years before, ordered a task force to examine Whitman's autopsy as well as medical history in his journals, but also to examine the police response to the shootings. Whitman's autopsy revealed a pecan-sized tumor in his brain and a good deal of necrosis surrounding that tumor. The commission ruled this tumor could have been a factor in his headaches and his erratic behavior, though it stopped short of stating that this was clearly the cause. Analysis of his journals showed narcissistic behavior in some cases, and others have pointed to post-traumatic stress disorder from his abusive childhood. In truth, even today, nobody will ever really know what caused Whitman to go insane and snap that day. In terms of the police response, it must be remembered that at the time of the shootings, the Austin Police Department had no specialized tactical unit trained to deal with these situations. The first SWAT unit in the nation had only been formed in Philadelphia just two years before, and even then, it was intended only to deal with bank robberies. Austin police officers were equipped with revolvers, which proved ineffective against a sniper in a concrete tower. There were also few radios, and the city's phone system was overwhelmed by calls. The events this day in Austin led to a reassessment of both police equipment and in training and tactics. Most cities, within a short period of time, including Austin, formed SWAT units out of fear of a future situation, like that at the UT Tower. Following the shootings, the tower observation deck was closed to visitors. 
1967, the University of Texas spent $5,000 to repair the bullet holes left from the shooting, and it reopened in 1968. Sadly, over the next six years, four people committed suicide by jumping from the observation deck. The tower was closed again in 1975, and it remained so until September 15, 1999. Since then, there's only been controlled access to the tower. Visitors are allowed only with guided tours scheduled by prior appointment and after being screened by metal detectors. For many years, the tower itself was the only memorial on campus to that terrible day. But in 2006, on the 40th anniversary of the massacre, a a memorial garden was dedicated to the victims. In 2008, a plaque was dedicated at Austin Police Headquarters inscribed with the names of 10 police officers and four civilians who were instrumental in aiding victims and stopping Whitman's shooting spree. What an insane day for Texas. Yeah, so we're releasing this just a week after the 50th anniversary, and there's a lot of discussion about this event in, in Texas history and in American history, in, in fact. And uh, it, is, it, is one of the, it is one of the defining moments in Texas in a lot of ways. I can remember um, for many years, you know, going to Austin and then saying you know, the, the tower, and my dad would say, that's, that's where the man shot the people from. And um, uh, it, was just a, it was just a terrible, horrible day. Um, and it, it's, a, it's kind of a, a points back to a different time. Um, when this didn't happen, you know, today we kind of have this happening a lot, unfortunately, sadly, in our country. But back then, this was the very, the, really the first modern mass killing spree like this in the country's history. I had a great conversation with my Uncle Cecil, and I've talked about him on the show before. He was at the University of Texas at this time, and he attended the first summer session, which it ended. Uh, so he was home on the farm when this happened during the second summer session. Uh, and some interesting details. Uh, Oscar Royella was actually uh, lived at the at the house that he lived in in Austin. And additionally, um, you know, when the whole thing happened, basically he was outside, and his mother had come out and said, "You know, there's something about the university on the TV." But you know, they were out in the country, so it you know essentially it was, you know, there's a, a sniper at the University of Texas. News at 11. And it went back to, you know, kind of the soap operas. And it was just, it was very sparse reports. You know, there's no pictures. There's no video. There's, you know, there's no real live feed. We don't, he didn't see the events unfolding. It was, this thing is happening. And some of the details came out in the news. But honestly, he said, you know, it wasn't until he came back for the start of the fall semester that he even sort of got to hear the stories and find out that his friend had been one of the people shot. Uh, luckily, he said he's always adjacent to big historical events and isn't really part of history. Uh, but because if he'd have taken the second section of that math course he was taking that in summer one, he would have been right in the crosshairs of that because the class got out, you were right there, you would walk right across that um, plaza, and he'd have been right in the kill zone. So, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those fortunate turns of, of luck that he wasn't there when it happened. Um, the thing that I found really interesting in my conversation with Cecil, though, and, and you guys can tell me your opinion on this, but in light of all of the shootings, the tragedies, and the way the media has us sort of thinking about when these events happen today, uh, I said, well, how did you feel when you went back to school? You know, what was the sort of the mood? And he said, well, you know, we, we came back to school, and 
the tower was locked. And it was just sort of understood that the administration had taken care of it. The tower was off limits. And oh, it's not going to happen again because the tower is closed. And there wasn't a memorialization. There wasn't, you know, a school-wide sort of announcement or something about in the wake of it. It just business as usual. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then, you know, that was the thing that there is film of the actual the the the, the siege that someone brought out a someone brought out a an eight millimeter uh, black and white camera and filmed it and with sound. So you can actually you can actually find it on YouTube. Um, I I don't know if we're going to put links on uh, on the show notes or not. Um, it's kind of frightening actually because you see you can see the tower, you can see the the gunshots from the tower, you see the people um, on the ground, the wounded. Uh, the young lady crouching behind the column. So it is. It really does look like it looks like the film of Vietnam of of the Tet Offensive just two years later in Vietnam. That's that's really a lot. What it reminds me the most of is right. is you know the, the that urban that urban combat in in Vietnam War, and that's what a lot of people you know that was that was '66. So the war was really just getting started. So that wasn't at the front of people's brains at that time, but. Yeah, in retrospect, it really looks like that. The thing that I found fascinating, interesting, was the the psychiatrist that he that he met with, uh, and he, you know, he he basically told him what he was going to do. Um, and a, again, it harkens back to a different time. At the time, there was a patient client, a doctor patient confidentiality. Um, today, the it I, I don't know if it's the law or if it's just part of medical practice, but Doctors and psychiatrists are supposed to report to the authorities when they feel a person's going to be a danger to themselves or to others. So in, I hopefully in today's environment, a statement of I'm going to go up on the tower and start shooting people with my deer rifle would at least trigger some type of follow-up by someone. This is one of those um, events in history that I didn't really have a lot of knowledge of until recently. Um I've learned more about reading through the research for this episode than I had known previously. Um, mostly what I had known was just that once in the 60s, there was a sniper on the UT Tower that, that shot a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And most of my exposure to it was through pop culture, actually. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The knowledge of the, uh, I believe it was um, Kurt Russell was yep. in the movie about the, the Deadly event. Tower. It's a TV and yeah, and then there's a very fascinating scene in uh, Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, where one of the characters recounts how his uh, um, the character had been there with his mother, and his mother was killed by uh, Charles Whitman, and he recounts the memory of that, and that kind of shapes his character in that film. It was uh, Tom Sizemore's police officer character in that, and you know, so those are the things that that shaped it for for me as far mm -hmm. as my my memory or my my knowledge of the event. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, it, it's very striking how differently things were treated then. You know, and and it, again, you can chalk it up to you know different time, um, it being the first time that something like this had really happened. And so, you know, what do you what do you do in a situation mm -hmm. like that? You, at, at the time, I'm sure they thought this is a very aberrant thing. This is not something that we can expect to happen a lot. You know, right. obviously no one predicted that it was going to happen. So, well, it's interesting. The pop culture thing, just to add to that, you know, that I I forgot about that scene from Natural Born Killers. I always go to there's a scene in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket 
where, you know, the famous gunnery sergeant says, you know, do any of you know who Charles Whitman is? And the one guy from Texas, he's that guy who shot all those people in Austin. So he's like, you're right. He's a Marine. He's a trained Marine who shot 30-something people from this many thousand yards. And he's touting. Well, now the. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean. Go ahead. I mean, John. Well, so the scene. Yeah, that's a famous scene. And it's actually. So Cowboy says. Yeah, Cowboy's the one that says it was the guy who shot those people in tower. And the other one was Lee Oswald. Do you know who Lee Harvey Oswald is? And this is the guy that shot the president from the book Depository. And Gunny asks, what do those two have in common? And Joker says they were Marines. Shows what a Marine, what is something like a Marine can do with a rifle or something like that. It shows, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> I think the line is something along is, it just shows what a motivated Marine and his rifle can accomplish or something like that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's painful and kind of, yeah. and shocking. And I think that's part of what that movie is sort of reflecting. Uh, not to say any, you know, you brought up the point about the the doctor, though, and I read yeah. an interesting article in preparation for this about, you know, there's this criticism of this guy came in, he had violent fantasies, he was complaining of headaches, and the doctor, there's an article and talked about the doctor, he said, well, number one, the guy never came back. Like, usually mm-hmm. people come in and, and they go. The second point he made is is that, like, violent fantasies are not uncommon in people. And this is an initial consultation. He said, I have these violent fantasies. And the doctor said, you know, I have students come in here all the time with, with violent fantasies. They don't generally, they're just yeah. fantasies. They don't generally do what people th- claim they're going to do. And I think for that time, it certainly wasn't expected to say, well, if somebody said something that they dream about doing something, you know, some people dream about, you know, selling their house and living on a boat in Florida, I guess. But, you know, we don't worry about Sean selling his house and, you know, living on a shrimp boat in the, on the Gulf Coast. Um, look, it's a, you know, that could, that could happen. That, that could, could still happen. happen, Sean. Don't dare to dream. I just think that, that we look at this as, as, you know, we remember it as, so there was an incident at the tower. And in fact, that's just how it was known for years was it was just referred to as the incident. It was very glossed over. And I think that's why, Scott, you know, we don't have all of the gruesome details, the nitty gritty. And um, so I believe it was Dr. Cunningham, who was the chancellor in 1996, who actually put in the Memorial Garden and did a lot of this stuff for that. But my uncle brought up the point that he's actually a professor of chemistry and he was a TA of of some of his classes. He was just a TA at the time when all of that violence and stuff happened. And he left, he went and had this very um, successful career. But then when he came back to UT and um, and became the chancellor, then you notice that a few years later, for the 30th anniversary, that he did something to actually memorialize the tower and bring this about. And so it, you know, it, it, it wasn't forgotten by the people that day, I think, as much as he reflected in, in his conversation with me. And it's something that they've all carried, but it's also sort of a, a shared, you know, experience for those. And then so I think it wouldn't be remembered as much if he hadn't have been the chancellor at the time. I don't know that it would have been uh, quite so much memorialized. I mean, here's the thing I think that we look at it today is we saw... We've seen a number of campus shootings. We've seen a number of violent actions, and they're they're in our Twitter feed and our Facebook. They're on the news. 
they're, you know, we're seeing these things live and in color and in front of us. And it's a very different time in terms of how we view violence. Um, my uncle did point out that, you know, even under today, under today's laws and under laws that were being proposed right now, would not stop what happened at UT. Right. That he was none of the. He was not mentally ill. He was not a violent felon. He was not mm-hmm. in any way incapacitated. He was someone totally average who just snapped. And yeah, and, he, and all the weapons, all the weapons that he purchased were legally purchased at. The, yeah. He either the owned hardware the, he either owned the guns. Sears. He either owned the guns yeah. or he bought guns that you can still just buy over the counter today. Yeah, he 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 bought he bought a he bought a shotgun at Sears, which that was a little star, or, uh, jarring to me to see. He bought a shotgun at, at Sears, um, but that was 1966. So Sears is a different place now, but it but, is just well, it's it's you know, and it's just it's a tragedy. Uh, it is kind of an interesting thing to see, also that you know just how well well um, equipped and and trained our police forces are today. It it goes back again to like we said it, it was a different time. This was part of um, some other events that had happened in that time period that uh, had pushed um, law enforcement to uh, develop the, the SWAT teams and you know the special tactics and to be prepared for these um, at the time what they would consider to be very much exceptional outlying events. Um, in fact, I think even originally uh, SWAT teams were not like a standing unit. They were like a special thing that only came together during these um, outrageous and unexpected things. So it, it, it's just a reflection again of how much our our society, I guess, has changed and evolved. And, and again, it comes back to um, how little people knew about what was happening while it was happening. Nowadays, again, we see you know, cell phone videos and tweets almost immediately after something like this starts to happen and it spreads all over the internet um, almost instantly. So you, you kind of have to speculate. It's like, well, what would it have been like, you know, right? if that sort of thing had been been around, you know, if, if the internet and that instant communication um, had been around back then? There have been, before this, there were like incidents of, of large-scale Gun violence. I mean, there is in 1929, there was the Valentine's Day Massacre. But um, I think that that was sort of regarded as, you know, those were criminals on criminals. That was a different kind of, um, a different kind of violence than this. This was just a, you know, a senseless attack on innocent civilians. There was no, you know, these weren't, these were just targets of opportunity and, you know, and even more so at at the heart of uh, a university, like right in the middle of of town. So, and I think Sean made an interesting point before we talked about this. This is actually a piece of living history. You know, there are many people who are listening to this who either were alive or who you know very much know people who may have been very close to this event when it happened. Um, this is not distant history tales of the old west. Uncle, my uncle Cecil gave me a, a link to a great resource that his daughter Marta had found called BehindTheTower.org. And uh, it's actually a wonderful project that's collected a lot of these stories. So if you'd like to know what happened to some of these victims uh, after the effect, the survivors of this tragedy, a lot of that's documented there. There's a lot of memos of that 
happen, what happened after the event. And uh, they've, they've managed to, to capture a lot of like sort of the mood around how people thought in, uh, about the tower uh, after it happened. So uh, I definitely think if you're interested in this, this piece of history, or if you know somebody uh, who was at UT at the time, you know, take, take the opportunity to ask them about what, it, what their experience was on campus and, uh, you know, embrace that history. Embrace Texas history. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We know you love this show, so get out there and tell your friends. And please leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you, too, can become a come-and-take-it. Texas Ranger. There's still a chance to get one of our 150th sesquicentennial anniversary shirts. So get online, go to texaspodcast.fm, and order up a shirt. A percentage of all the proceeds is going to go to help some of the victims of the Brazos flooding recently. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>